Again, we're very thankful for this precious opportunity that God's given us to be here in the house of the Lord. We very much appreciate the, the song service and the prayer that's been offered by our brother in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'd ask that you would pray for us during this time that we stand before you. Um, if we consider the life of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2, she was able to pray to the Lord and her voice not be heard. Do you remember Eli? He saw her lips move, but her voice was not heard. And it's possible by that alone for us to come to this understanding that we can pray to the Father in heaven without our voice being heard and, and God hear those, those prayers. And I would ask that you would petition the Lord for us in our room instead to go to the throne and pray that the Lord bless us during this time that we stand before him. Um, and before you, I am in full agreement with what the Lord Jesus Christ said in John chapter 15 and verse 5. When he said, without me, you can do, you can do nothing. And, um, and I would pray that you would pray for me as well as I've prayed for myself that God would be merciful to bless us to preach from his holy word. Job chapter 22 and verse 21. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to the Song of Solomon chapter 5. And Job chapter 22 and verse 21. It was Eliphaz the Temanite that, that said this. He said, Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. He's telling Job to be acquainted more with the Lord. And certainly as we live here in this world, none of us know all about the Lord. None of us know all about the word of God. My dad, who tried to preach the gospel his, his, basically his entire life, I mean, he started at age 20 and pastor churches all over the state of Georgia, I can remember my dad asked me when I was a young preacher, he said, uh, son, do you think you understand one, one page in God's, God's holy word? And I said, daddy, I don't think I really understand all of one verse. And daddy says, that's true. He said, because in my years of study, it seems like the older I get, the more I can see just in, in one verse. But I do see enough that I want to know more, more about the Lord and his holy word. And the more we know about the Lord, acquaint now thyself with him, the more peace, stability, comfort, strength we'll, we'll have in our lives. Now we've considered the Lord the promised son, we've considered the Lord the substitutionary lamb, we've considered the Lord the, the perfect husband of the bride, the perfect servant of the father. I'd like for us to look at this portion of Scripture in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, as we consider the Lord Jesus Christ, the devotion of the Shulamite. I'd like for us to first consider the historical setting of this, and this being something that happened in history, this relationship, this marriage between Solomon and this, this bride, this one that he loved. I'd like for us to consider a spiritual application, how it applies to the Lord and us. And the Shulamite throughout these eight chapters teaches us a lot about us. And as we look to Solomon, it teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd also like for us to consider the experiential application of this and how we are convicted and motivated to be better disciples of Jesus right, right now in our life. This, this should have an effect on us today. First of all, let's, let's read this portion of Scripture. Let's look at verse 9 of the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 16. The question is asked, 
of the Shulamite by the watchmen of the city and the daughters of Jerusalem. What is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women. Why is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? At this time, she's looking for Solomon. She can't find him. There was a time that she was supposed to be in the garden to fellowship with him, but she stayed in the bed. And he comes to her house and wakes her up. Hey, do you, did you forget about me in this time we're supposed to have? We're supposed to have a date tonight. And you've stood me up. Well, when her heart awoke and she realized she missed that time with him that she loved so much, she awoke, tried to find him, but she couldn't find him. And the watchmen of the city, they met her. The keepers did. And they, they smote her. The daughters of Jerusalem come and they say, why, why are you so interested in him? Why do you love him so much? What is he above other men that, that attracts you to him that you'd be out here in the night searching for him in the streets of Jerusalem? In verse 10, she said, my beloved. Well, I love that, don't you? My beloved. Do you remember last week? The Lord is my shepherd, my beloved. My beloved is white and ruddy. The cheapest among 10,000. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices as sweet flowers. His lips like lilies dropping sweet and smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with beryl. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon the sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. There, this is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I'm going to confess to you just the language here makes me emotional. The Song of Solomon. What is it about? I know this is an important song for us to study as children of God. 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 32, it says that Solomon's Proverbs were 3,000. His songs were, were 1,005. Solomon wrote many songs. Solomon penned many proverbs. But the Holy Spirit preserved this one for us. God's children to study, to read, and to know more about. You know, the language of this is very majestic. It's about two people that fell in love with one another. You know, the Shulamite, she's, she's just a little farm girl. She spends a lot of time in the vineyard. Spends a lot of time, you know, pruning the vines, picking the grapes, working on her mom and daddy or family's farm. And her skin is real dark with the sun. Probably a leathern look to her hands. Been out in the sun a lot. I mean, I'm sure her feet were pretty dirty. Hands would often be stained with the labors of her work. One day she was out in the vineyard working. 
And she looked up, and there was a man that came to the vineyard, and man, he was sharp. He was polished. He didn't have a hair out of place. I mean, he was the best-looking man she had ever saw in her life, and she just stood in awe. Now, I know kind of what she looked like because I still remember the first time Sister Jennifer saw me. <laughs> I didn't get an amen in the house on that one. <laughs> no, I want to tell you about Sister Jennifer. My dad, when she met, when he met Sister Jennifer, he told me, he said, Son, he said, I'm going to tell you, he said, you need to get that girl to marry you before she figures out what's going on. <laughs> But she saw this man, the Shulamite did, and how sharp he looked and how handsome he was. And she was just attracted to him. And so they begin to talk, and he shows interest in her. And it's just beyond her comprehension how he, this man that was this good-looking, this sharp, this cleanly dressed, could have an interest in her. She's just a farm girl. I'm a nobody. This, this man here could have any girl in the kingdom. One day she was out working and she's just about finished up. And she looked up. And here comes the king's chariot down the road. And she sees the horses and the men of war and the guards. She begins to look closely and she looks and she sees the king. He's in that chariot. She looks a little closer and sees that one that I was talking to in the vineyard that showed interest in me. He's the king of Israel. How could he love me? The king of Israel that owns everything, that has power and authority beyond anyone in the kingdom, showed interest in me, and yet when they would meet, he would tell her how much he loved her. And how beautiful she was to him. And how he just longed to spend time with her and be close to him. And over and over she'd say, not, not me. I'm just a farm girl. I'm a nobody. Why would you love me? You know, when I think about just the story of the Song of Solomon, it reminds me of, of me. See, I'm just a nobody. You know, every person in this world wants to be Somebody, to some degree. I remember I asked a preacher about a text that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, and it reads, For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty ye might be rich. I asked him, I said, would you please explain that text for me? He said, I can explain it like this. Everybody, in a certain way, wants to be somebody. Everybody would like to see their name on the back of their jersey, maybe their name in the newspaper, name up in lights. There's something in everybody that would like that. He said, but the truth is we're all a bunch of nobodies. We're a bunch of nobodies, nothing less than nothing. He said, this text is about a somebody. He said, no, it's not about a somebody. He said, it's about the somebody. You know who the somebody is? He's the king of Israel. His name is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the somebody, and the somebody loved all of us nobodies so much that he became a nobody that we would be somebody in him. And just like this Shulamite would think, how can he love me? 
I'm a nothing. I mean, the distance between God and I is beyond the distance between me and an ant on the ground. I'm a nothing and less than nothing in his sight. Yet I'm comforted over and over and have assurance that he loves me. And he longs to spend time with me. And this song is about the language back and forth between him, Solomon, and her and their relationship and how it grows and them being together. This language is, is very majestic. This language is, is in shadows and types to teach us about the Lord's love for us and our relationship that we have with Him. You know, this language in this song, I wouldn't recommend a, a man to take this language to himself and use it with his girlfriend or a husband to use it with his bride. It could get you in some trouble. I mean, can you just see when your anniversary rolls around and you'd look at your wife and you'd say, Hey, honey, you got hair like a goat, teeth like a sheep, and eyes like a bird. I love you so much. I, that really worked, right? So it's majestic language. We need to look deeper into it than just just face value. Here in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, I've already said that Solomon, he was in the garden at the end of chapter 4. It was a time they were supposed to be together, spend time with each other. But she didn't remember. She's in the bed asleep. So he comes to her house, knocks on the door. He wakes her up. He puts sweet smell of myrrh on the handles of the door. Her heart awakes and she says, oh, I forgot. I need to go find him. But by that time he was gone. She gets out in the city and the watchmen of the city, they're like, what are you doing out here at night? I'm looking for Solomon. Yo, I, I bet you are. Just look at you. You're not looking for Solomon. And they smote her. Told her to get back home. She wouldn't go back home. She kept looking for him. The daughters of Jerusalem Say, why are you so diligent to find him? What, is, what does he mean to you that you would go through all of this and in the night to find him? What is thy beloved more than another beloved? Why would he mean more to you than just any other man? Why are you so devoted to this time that you want to spend with him? And she begins to tell why she loves him so. You know, when I read this, it, it convicts me and my lack of devotion for the Lord. Because he is all of this and more for us, his children. I mean, the relationship between Solomon and the Shulamite, it pales in comparison to the love, the great love that God has for us. And since he has had such a great love for us, we should be more devoted to him than even the Shulamite was was devoted to, to Solomon. What does he mean to you? Why do you love him so much? She said, my beloved, my beloved, he's mine. He's white and ruddy. The word ruddy here literally means he's, he's, he's red. And when you read that, you think, well, he's, she's making reference to his complexion. He's a very healthy man. He's a handsome man. He's got color in his, in, his, in his face. And that's true when you look at it just from a historical application. But when you look deeper than that and you look at it as it being a figure or a type or, or a picture of the relationship between the Lord and his people, you see something more than that. See, white in the Bible is a color of, of holiness and perfection. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, when the children of God would stand before the Lord in his righteousness that was imputed to them, 
And the Bible makes reference to their clothing being that linen, that fine linen, white linen. They were dressed in white. There's no darkness, no blackness about them. When you think about the Lord Jesus Christ there on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, and Luke chapter 9, when he was transfigured before them, and the word transfigured there is translated from the Greek metamorpho. It's where we derive the word metamorphosis. There was a metamorphosis that took place. Now, in a metamorphosis, when you get a caterpillar that goes in a cocoon and it comes out a butterfly, it's not a different creature. It's the same creature that's manifested in a more beautiful way. See, the butterfly that comes out is not different than the caterpillar. It's the same creature manifested in a more beautiful way. The Lord Jesus Christ was metamorphosed, transfigured before them. He showed his glory. And you know what they said? They said his raiment was so white that no fuller could white them. What does that mean? That means you couldn't get a person with Clorox and detergent to wash clothes to get them as white as the Lord appeared because he appeared in his righteousness in his perfection. They saw him as the eternal son of God on that mount. But she said not only is he white, but he's also, also ruddy. Ruddy is, is a red color. You remember David in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he was said to be of ruddy complexion. He was, his skin was reddish looking. Red in the Bible all the way through make reference to blood or man. Man. Do you know Adam, his name? You know what Adam's name means? Red man, red earth. That's what it means. And man without the Lord is nothing but just that red. You remember Esau when he was born? Esau was not a child of God. He was born just a carnal man. The Bible said he was red all over. But she says of her king, the one she's devoted to, not only is he white, but he's also ruddy. Let's put that together and let's point to the Lord here. The Lord Jesus Christ is white and red at the same time. The Lord Jesus Christ is holy and man at the same time. The Lord Jesus Christ is holy man. The Lord Jesus Christ is God man. And there's not another like him. That's the reason she said he's the cheapest among 10,000. Meaning there's not another like him. You know the Bible says concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one mediator between God and men, not two, not three, not four. There's one mediator between God and men, and he is the man, Christ Jesus. Holiness, perfection, righteousness, the one that has always been and always will be, took upon himself perfect humanity and came into this world at the fullness of time when it was appointed to him to come and holiness and perfection became man. See, Jesus Christ is not a man in eternity past. He's God, the Son, the Word. And God, the Son, the Word came into the world and became, took upon himself, man. Do you remember the text there in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5 of the Lord Jesus Christ? It said, A body thou hast prepared for me. No, that's not the way it reads. A body thou prepared for me. Me, me, God became flesh and dwelt among us. And you would ask, well, Brother Ronnie, can you explain that? I cannot explain it. I just believe it. And it's the very foundation of what we believe as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is God and man 
at the same time. And without understanding that, you'll be confused in reading the New Testament. I mean, I can read of the Lord like in Psalms 121 and verse 4 that he neither slumbers nor sleeps. As the eternal Son of God, holiness, righteousness, and perfection, he doesn't need rest. He's God. But I find over Matthew chapter 8 and verse 24, he got tired and he went to sleep. As man, he got tired and he went to sleep. As the Son of God, he knows all things. He's the same as the Father and the Holy Spirit. As the Son of Mary, as perfect man, I remember he said of a time, that hour, that he would come back in the clouds. No man knoweth that hour. Well, why would he say that as the Son of Mary, perfect man on earth, as the servant, the perfect servant of the Father? That hour no man knoweth, but as God, he knows all things. And he's God and man at the same time. And since he's God and man at the same time, he's the perfect mediator for us between God and ourselves. Do you remember Job in Job chapter 9 and verse 31? He makes reference to a mediator. He said, I have no daysman. A daysman is a mediator. A daysman is one that can lay his hands on both and be a mediator between two. Have you ever thought about the difference between us and God? And how God is perfect and holy? And how far we are away from Him in sin? Well, how am I going to fellowship with God? If I'm that far away from God? The only way I can have fellowship with God is by a mediator between me and God. Between God and myself. And Jesus Christ is that Mediator, do you remember the tabernacle in the wilderness? When the high priest would enter into the tabernacle, you remember the, the curtain, the veil? You remember what colors it were, was? It was red, blue, and purple. If you go through the book of Numbers, blue represents all types of heavenly things. You remember in Numbers chapter 15, they had a blue lace upon their garments to remind them of the heavenly commandments of God. Then you've got red on the other side. Red, of course, representing man. Well, right in the middle was purple. You take red and blue and put together, you get purple. See, Jesus Christ is the red and the blue put together. He is white and red put together. He is the mediator. And it was through that curtain, through that center part, that purple of that curtain, that the high priest was able to go in and fellowship with God. You know how we're able to fellowship with God? You know how we'll have a home in heaven? How we're able to fellowship with him right now? Because we have a mediator a holy man between us and God, and it's by him, through him, and of him that I'm able to fellowship with my Father in heaven, and without him, I am nothing, nothing. She said, this is how much he means to me. He's the cheapest among 10,000. There's not another like him. And praise God, there's not another like Jesus. The Bible said when he's the only begotten son, what does that mean? That means there's not another like him. John 3, 16 He's the only begotten son. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 22 when God told Abraham to take his son, his only son? Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son. Abraham had another son. Remember his name was Ishmael? Ishmael was the son of Hagar, the handmaid. But the Bible said that Isaac was his only son. What does that mean? Isaac was a son like no other. Isaac was his promised son. Isaac was the one that God promised to he and Sarah, and at the appointed time she gave birth to Isaac. Of course, she named him Isaac because she says, God hath made me to laugh. God made her happy. And praise God, God is the only one that can really make you happy. <laughs> Jesus Christ, God's got many sons. Job 38, verse 4, the angels were called sons. 
First John chapter 3 and verse 2, we're called sons of God. But the angels, we, we're not a son like Jesus is the son. Jesus is a son like no other. She said he's the chiefest among 10,000, one like no other. You know, no one is able to do what Jesus Christ can do. Do you remember the Samaritan in John chapter 4? When Jesus told her all about her life, and she said in verse 29, Come see a man that told me all things I ever did. Jesus could do that. He could look into her life as he ever thought she ever had. Jesus could do miracles that no man could do. You remember when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which was a testimony that he is the eternal Son of God? You know what the Pharisees wanted to do? They wanted to kill Lazarus. You know why? It was an evidence that he is God. We've got to kill Lazarus. Which if you can't destroy the message, I guess you're supposed to destroy the messenger, right? Kill Lazarus. How foolish is that? You know, carnal man is very foolish. I look at that when they want to kill Lazarus, and I'm thinking, well, he just raised him from the dead one time. He'd be able to do it again. What would killing Lazarus really do? It wouldn't really do nothing. He raised him from the dead. He just did it. He could do it again. Jesus did things that no man could do. He also spake and said things that no man had ever spake. You remember when the officers came to arrest him? John chapter 7. They said, never a man. Mm-mm. It says, never man spake like this man. It didn't say never a man. Never man. If it said never a man, it had been not a man up to that point. But when it says never man, it means all men that ever lived on this earth. No one has ever and will ever speak like the Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke with authority. He spoke with truth. He spoke with power because he's one with the Holy Spirit. And praise God, he did something for us on the cross of Calvary that no one could do for us. And that's die for our sins and make us righteous and holy in the sight of the Father. He's the cheapest among 10,000. His head is as the most fine gold. Referencing the preciousness of his head. I don't think when she looked at him, she saw gold, but I think she saw the preciousness of his head. And when you think about the head, you think about the thoughts. His thoughts are just precious. Don't you know she just loved being around Solomon and just hearing the things he talked about? She just liked to hear the sound of his voice. And what are you thinking about today? You know, when you love someone and you're drawn to them, you just like to hear them and what they have to say. You know, often in this world we find people so in love with themselves they don't want to hear anything anyone else has to say. Because why? What they have to say is more important than anything else, but not her. No, she said, I, I just want to know what he thinks about it. I'm sure many times she asked him, what do you think What do you think about this? His head is this most fine gold. When I take that and go to the Lord Jesus Christ and I think about his thoughts and his precious thoughts and how it's the most fine gold. Do you remember over in Psalms chapter 40 and verse 5? When it makes reference to wonderful are his works and his thoughts to usward, usward. Who are the usward? The usward is the family of God. Three times in the Bible the word usward is found. And three times it's making reference to the family of God. Psalms chapter 40 and verse 5, his thoughts to usward. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, his powerful works to usward. And over in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, makes reference to his long suffering to usward, the family of God. How precious are his thoughts. Do you realize the Lord thought on you, dear child of God, before the world began? The Lord thought on you. Do you know the Lord put more effort in the saving of you from the penalty of your sin than he did in the creation of this world? 
That's how important you are to God, dear child of God. You know, this world creation of the world and the universe, according to Psalms chapter 8 and verse 3 and 4, that was just the finger work of God. God took his fingers and made the earth. God took his fingers and made the sun. God took his fingers and made the moon and all the planets, all the stars that we see. Someone asked me once, why are there so many stars up in the sky, Brother Ronnie? I said, the Lord just put them there for his little children to look at at night. That's why he put them there. That's how much he loves you. Finger work. But when it comes to the salvation of God's people, saving them from the penalty of their sin, it's called the arm work of God. He put more power into saving you because he loved and thought on you more than he did the creation of the universe. Why? Because his thoughts toward you is like the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. He was a healthy man. He didn't have little gray hairs on the side like I do. He was a healthy man, Solomon was. She said, man, I'll tell you what, his locks are black and bushy. He's a healthy man. He's got a lot of vigor. But when I look deeper into that black and bushy, how does that apply to the Lord? How does it apply to Jesus? If I go to Revelation chapter 1, John saw Jesus. You remember he was on the Isle of Patmos? Let me chase a rabbit just for a second. John was on the Isle of Patmos, banished for his love and devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ. A place that was set aside for prisoners. And he said it was on the Lord's Day that he saw those things that he would write. The Lord's Day? That's the first day of the week. You think John had a calendar on that island? You think John had a Timex watch? That day was so important to John because that's when he saw the Lord alive that every time that day come around, he said, today's the day of the week that I saw him. We have a calendar. We have a watch. And how often we forget about the Lord's day. John on the island of Patmos, without a calendar, but without a watch, said it was on the Lord's day, the day that I saw him alive, that he appeared. And when the Lord appeared to him, he saw him walking in the midst of the candlesticks. That was the seven churches. And he said his hair was as white as wool. Well, this text said it was black. How does this apply to Jesus? How can we take this and type and figure and apply it to Jesus? White, Revelation 1. Black here, but you see there was an event that happened between here in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, and Revelation, chapter 1. It was the cross. It was the cross. See, we can read this and we can see something in Jesus before he died on the cross. And we can look and we can see him as our sin bearer. Blackness and darkness all the way through scripture represents sin. And the darkness and the blackness of sin. And it was Jesus that came into the world to be our sin bearer. And when he died on the cross and gave his life, it wasn't some of the sin, part of the sin. It was all the sins of his people were laid on him and he suffered. You know, my conscience troubles me just with my faults. What about the faults of the entire family of God? That's a number that no man can number out of every kindred tongue, people, nation, the sands of the seashore and the stars of heaven. How about that sin? He bore that sin. But you know, when he died on the cross and went in the grave, when he came out, he's not bearing our sin anymore. His hair is as white as wool. And praise God, he's not bearing our sin. 
We're not bearing our sin anymore. Why? Because Jesus Christ satisfied the Father, the only judgment seat that mattered. You know the only judgment seat that matters concerning our heavenly home? That judgment seat. It doesn't matter what a judge in Nevada says, a judge in California, a judge in North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Montana. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what a preacher says. It doesn't matter what a deacon says. What matters is did Jesus Christ satisfy that judgment seat? And if Jesus satisfied that judgment seat positionally in him, you're just as white as he is. We are as white as snow. And I'm looking forward to one day hugging his neck, my sin bare, black as a raven. Notice in verse 12, his eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. His eyes are like doves, doves' eyes. If you've done any study of, of a dove, you'll know that a dove has one mate for life. A dove doesn't jump all around town. A dove doesn't go to another. One mate for life. Now, a dove is used as an emblem of peace. And certainly, he is our prince of peace. But a dove is also used as an emblem of devotion because they have one mate for life. What she's saying here is he gives me peace when I'm around him. But I also know he's faithful to me. He has eyes for me and no other. And he loves me. You know, that faithfulness is something that's not common in the world we live in, right? Would you agree that the world is filled with unfaithfulness, people you cannot depend on. I mean, I think this last year I've learned that some folks you can't depend on. I mean, we've got a lot of folks, and I'll say it in government, you can't depend on them. Mm -mm. They're out for one thing, and that's themselves. We've got a lot of people throughout the world. They're just out for themselves. They're not faithful. But there's one that's faithful. There's one that has eyes for one, and that's his people. And he's faithful. We can depend on him. He'll be there every time we need him. Do you remember in Psalms chapter 46 and verse 1 about the Lord God as our refuge and strength? A very present help in time of trouble. You know what that means, a very present help? That means he's always right there when I need him. I can depend on him. You know the greatest ability known to man? It's dependability. And who could we else depend on but the Lord? He will never let you down. That's the reason Romans 9.33 says, He that believeth shall not be ashamed. That word ashamed there means confounded or let down, disappointed. You will never be disappointed in the Lord. He will not disappoint you in your temporal life. He will not disappoint you in your service to Him. And I, I'll say praise the Lord when He comes back in the clouds. Nobody is going to be disappointed in the resurrection at the last day. Jennifer and I, we were talking this week, and I, I think we were talking to Sister Debbie Henson, and it uh, may have been Brother Gary and Sister Sandra. That may have been who we were talking to, and, and we said there's, there's a characteristic about my family, and it seems like it's getting worse with me, and it's being under, underwhelmed. It's hard to impress. I mean, my grandpa, Ben Landers Lauderman, was just a man that was completely underwhelmed. You couldn't impress him. No matter what you did, no big deal. My daddy told me he took my papa to the ocean 
And my grandpa had never saw the ocean in his life. And Daddy said he stood there and looked out the Atlantic Ocean. Daddy said it was as far as you could see, water. And he asked Papa, he said, uh, what do you think about it being? He said, you know, he said, I kind of thought it'd be bigger. <laughs> You're not going to impress him. It's almost like he was let down with everything. Yeah, I can remember working with Papa. No matter what I did, he'd, he'd, that's all right. That's fine. But I'll tell you, that last day when the Lord comes back and the bodies come out of the ground and the sky is filled with the souls and spirits of the children of God that have gone home before. You know, the Bible says when he cometh with the clouds. See, the clouds will be the souls and the spirits of all the children of God that are there with him. And they'll come in the clouds and the bodies will be raised up Changed in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye, and all gathered up together, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, not coming back to earth, but being with Him in glory. Everyone's going to be impressed that that day. When Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions, what He said is, heaven is a big place, and when you get there, you're going to be impressed. He's faithful. His eyes are clear. Washed with milk. And notice they're, they're fitly set. Is that talking about them being fitly set in his eye sockets? Or being fitly set on her? She said his eyes are fitly set on me. I'm going to be his wife. And there ain't nothing going to change. She knows he's promised me. We're going to be together. And nothing is going to change it. Because his eyes are fixed on me. Dear child of God, I want to tell you, I'll confirm this with Scripture. God's eyes are fixed on you. And you will be with him in heaven. When he gave his life on the cross, he saw his seed. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Also Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. He saw his seed. He saw his people. He knew who he was dying for on the cross. And he gave his life. Why? Because he loves you and his eyes are fitly set on you. And his eyes are going to be fitly set on you. He will know everything you're going through in your life. There's not a tear that's went down your cheek. There's not a trouble that you've had. There's not anything that you've gone through. He hasn't saw it and he knows it. He knows it. Why? Because you mean that much to him. All of his little sheep mean that much to him. His eyes are fitly set on you. And how it comforts my heart to know that there's one in heaven that owns all things, that's over all things, and have his eyes fixed on little old me and nobody. She said his eyes are fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. His cheeks in complexion. I think about the cheeks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember it was Isaiah chapter 15 verse 6. It said they plucked the hair from his cheeks. You know the Lord Jesus Christ did not have long hair. But he had a beard. Do you know the Jewish practice custom was to cut hair at least once a month? How do you know, Brother Ronnie? Because I know a man like Samson that was a Nazarite. He would let his hair grow. That was out of the ordinary. Showing forth his consecration. By the way, it was lots, not just long hair down his back. Remember, it was Jacob, when he deceived his father Isaac, he had to cover the smooth of his neck. Well, if he had hair all the way down his back, why would he have to cover the smooth of his neck? He wouldn't have to. The Lord Jesus Christ did not have long hair, but the Lord Jesus Christ had a beard. 
And when they crucified the Lord with wicked hands, people would come and pluck the hair from his, from his cheeks. Why would he suffer that? Because his eyes are fitly set on you. Because of his love for you. You remember it was Judas? Luke chapter 22, verse 48 and 49. He came. Where did he kiss the Lord? He kissed him on the cheek. Remember Jesus said of Judas, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a, with a kiss? You know, those cheeks of the Lord that suffered having hair plucked from his face, that was excruciating pain, that suffered Judas, the betrayer, the son of perdition, to kiss him on the cheek. Those are the cheeks that I look to that are very beautiful. They're like sweet-smelling myrrh. They're spices of sweet flowers. And I think about those cheeks and how I would long, as probably disciples did in that day, to hug Jesus and kiss him on the cheek. I can see Mary there in John chapter 20 when she saw the Lord. She embraced him and hugged him and holding on to him. And I'm sure she just wanted to kiss his cheek, showing her adoration and love for him. And he said, hug me not, touch me not, for I've yet ascended to my Father. What he's saying is, we've got time to hug. Right now you need to go tell everybody you saw me alive. And brothers and sisters, during this time, I know I've got time in my life to tell everybody about the Lord Jesus Christ, but how I long for that time when I'll be with him that I can kiss his cheek and thank him that he suffered all that he suffered in my room instead. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. His lips like lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. Verse 16 said, His mouth is most sweet. What is she saying? She said, when he talks to me, whoo, it's just like a babbling brook. I mean, I mean, I can't believe this poetry that comes forth from his lips. The things that he said, it just, it just turns my heart inside out. You think about the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and those things that he says to us in his word, those things that he said to his people when he walked here on earth that's recorded for us in his word. How sweet is it? How sweet is it to our experience? I mean, his word is light for our path. His word is a guide for us here in this life. His word gives us comfort and gives us peace. Sweet are those words that come forth from his lips. No wonder Mary in Luke chapter 10 just wanted to sit and hear him. We can just sit in a stool and just listen to the Lord all the day long. Brother Ronnie, I wish I could just sit and listen to the Lord all the day long. I can, I can. You know how I can? Reading his word. I want to simplify something for you. Prayer and hearing the Lord. Communication. You know what prayer is? It's us talking to Him. You want to spend some time just talking to the Lord? Pray. You know, the Bible says we should get in our closet and pray. Let's make a reference to a closet of our hearts. Let's just get by ourselves with the Lord and talk to Him. He's easy to talk to. His ears are always open. He's always there when we need Him. You know, the Lord is... He's a great attorney at law. The Bible makes reference to him being that attorney at law for us. Would you like to have an attorney that works for free, always there when you need him, and has never lost a case? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> he's never lost a case. He works for free, don't charge, but he's always there when I need him. He is that mediator, that one, and when I go to him and I want to talk to him. He's always there and has an ear. But not only that, he's given me his, his word. God talking to us. God talks to us primarily right through his word. I'm not doubting that God could use an audible voice and speak to us. But the primary way God speaks to us is right here in his word. When I want to hear from the Lord, I go to the Bible. And the words that he's given me here is 
sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands, verse 14, are as gold rings set with beryl. His hands and the works of his hand, rings in the Bible are, are emblems of, of covenant and covenant keeping. You know, the circumcision that was given to Abraham, which was a token of the promised covenant that he had given to him, that was given a circumcision, circular cutting. You remember when God made a promise to Noah and the earth, he wouldn't destroy it. There was a bow put in the clouds. You know, the bow, we only see half of it. If you look at a rainbow from an airplane, it's a complete circle, a complete circle. God, what he, she's saying is he, he keeps his word. He keeps his promise. And how I look to the Lord and him being one that keeps, keeps his promise. His belly is his bright ivory, his inward affection toward his people. His legs, he's a very stable man, she said, are like pillars of marble. And I think about the stability I have in the Lord. I can lean on him. I can lean on the everlasting arms. And any time I need strength and stability in my life, I can go to him. And then she says, his countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. There's nothing about him that I don't love. And she says, I'm devoted to him. Why? Because this is my beloved. This is my friend. You know, when I read this and I think about her devotion to him, and this is Solomon. This is the king of Israel, yes, but it's Solomon. He's a man. He's a man that made mistakes in his life. How do you know he made mistakes, Brother Ronnie? The Bible said Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Surely one of those was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, I've said it many times. That's way too many mother-in-laws for me. 700 wives. He made mistakes. And she had this devotion for him. When I read these words and her devotion for him and how it points to the Lord, how, how should I be convicted to have a greater devotion to the Lord to tell all this that he's done? He's done for me is his child. I'm convicted by reading this to have more devotion for him. Remember David? David in Psalms 44 verse 6, he makes reference to his devotion for God. He said, I will boast in myself. No, I will boast in the Lord all the day long. Paul gives us motivating words in Philippians chapter 3. He makes reference to his life and all his accolades and everything that he had accomplished. He said, but you know, all this is but dumb for me. It's nothing. I just want to know more about, about him. I want to know more about the Lord and be found in him. What is he saying, being found in him? That I may find, my, find myself in him by studying the evidence of my life and finding that I belong to him and that he loves me because I love him. And praise God, dear child of God, if you love him, you only love him because he first loved you. And it's an evidence that you are a born-again child of God. You're heaven-bound and heaven-bought and hell-proof. Yeah, think about this adoration she had for him and how I should adore the Lord and have more devotion and adoration for him. You know, man in this world is going to be committed to something. You'd be committed, committed to sports, committed to the political world, committed to the financial world, or just committed to himself. Man is going to be committed to something. And he is going to give his adoration to something. I remember there in Hosea chapter 13 and verse 2, Hosea makes reference to people who kiss the calves. What are the calves? Those are two calves that Jeroboam set up in Bethel and Dan. They kissed the calves. They kissed the idols. They gave their adoration to the idols that were set up in those two cities, which were set up to prevent the people from going south and worshiping God in the temple. Brothers and sisters, do we give adoration to the idols of this world? 
I recall a man named Absalom in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 4 and 5. He was a man that was set at the gate. And as people would come in the gate, he'd kiss them and kiss their hands. He was looking for popularity in this world. He wanted what his dad had. Absalom was an outstanding politician. He was kissing hands and kissing the cheeks of people. Were well, we giving adoration to people that we gave popularity in this world? What about Job in Job chapter 31 and verse 27? He said, lest I kiss my own hands. Is, is our adoration and attention to ourselves? It's all about me. Everything's around me. The world you know, revolves around me. Is that what it's about? David said in Psalms chapter 2 and verse 12, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. This motivates me and convicts me to be more devoted and have more adoration for him. Because if she has this kind of adoration and love, respect for Solomon, how much more should I have adoration, love, and respect for the one that done something that nobody else could do, and that's to save me from the hell that I deserve. And I pray that he'd give me strength to serve him more than I'd serve him in joy, that I'd serve him in happiness, that I would serve him in conviction, and all the strength that he would give me, that I would live in such a way to be a better man here in this world. Because at the end of the day, every preacher should desire to be a good man that preaches. Not just a man that preaches good. I want to be known as a good man that just preaches. And the only way I'm going to be a good man that just preaches is if I love him more. I adore him more. And I'm more committed to him. I want to end by thinking about two people real quick. One was a man. He's called the rich young ruler. Matthew 19, 16. Mark 10, 17. Luke 18, 18. The Lord loved that man. That man is in heaven right now because the Lord loved him. But that man was not committed to God. He did not adore the Lord as much as he adored his own riches. And he went away from God. The very next person we run into in the Bible after that is a man named Blind Bartimaeus. He didn't have nothing. And the Bible said that he cast away all that he had and followed Jesus, glorifying him. And that's where the Bible leaves him, right there. I believe he was with the Lord and close to the Lord all the way to that time that he ascended back to the clouds. Let me be like blind Bartimaeus, willing to cast it all aside just as long as I can be close to him. May God richly bless us our prayer. Does anyone here this morning like to come forward and ask for a home here at Union Grove from your Baptist church? I'd like to encourage you to do so while we stand to sing hymn number 448.